Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. A couple of weeks ago, the New York Times ran a story about global nomads, people whose work allows them to plug in anywhere in the world. Well, this may not be for everybody. It's a reminder that the fundamentals of work continue to change. How do we work in an always-on 24-7 world, in a world where intellectual capital is increasingly the coin of the realm? We're essentially at work whenever we're awake and maybe even while we're sleeping. All of this change arguably creates the need for a rebalance of our relationship to work, what work, even the word work, really means, and how we determine priorities in today's environment. An environment where generational dynamics impact work and where we sometimes wonder if that cliche of work-life balance is even a thing anymore. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Morton Hansen. Morton Hansen is a management professor at UC Berkeley. He is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Great by Choice, and the author of the highly acclaimed Collaboration. He's formerly a professor at the Harvard Business School and holds a PhD from Stanford Business School, where he was a Fulbright scholar. It is my pleasure to welcome Morton Hansen here to talk about his newest book, Great at Work, how top performers work less and achieve more. Morton, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a delight to have you here. One of the things that you talk about is that the whole nature of the way we work is broken. Is it broken because work has so fundamentally changed today or as a result of what we've learned about human performance? Well, it's both, actually, and I think you said it really well in in your introduction, which is uh, the way we're working now is a 24-7 world. And yet, you know, we have to look at uh, productivity measures and performance as a result of all that hard work. And it just isn't there. Productivity, for the most part, is flat across sectors and across the globe. And yet we're working, it seems like, harder than ever. So why are we not performing better if we're putting in all, all those hours and we're sacrificing so much? And in my new book, uh, which is uh, based on a study of 5,000 people, I basically asked the question, why do some people perform better in their job than others? What is it we can learn if we make it an empirically-based investigation? And that's really what I set out to do, and we found some really compelling answers. Do we need to look at the way we measure performance and productivity different in the kind of work environment that we have today? Yeah, I think one of, that's one of the problems. And, and what we found is that top performers, we study sort of low and mid and top performers, and we found that top performers, they are not just looking at uh, getting the job done. They're not just saying, you know, these are my job specs, these are my metrics, these are my goals, and I'm just going to work hard to accomplish that. They, they instead ask the question, how can I contribute more value? And if you ask the value question, you start looking at ways in which you can create more value, more benefits for others who are the, out, who are the beneficiary of the output of your work. And then they start changing. And in and, and many ways, we have the wrong metrics. I mean, just give you an example of that. So we studied um, one person who was in the logistics in a warehouse, and he was shipping out products to the corporate customers. And his metric was the number of shipments that go out on time. In other words, to keep the schedule. And he hit 99% shipment rate, which is very, very impressive if you think about it. But then they asked the customers who were in the receiving end of this, uh, and they said they only got the shipments when they needed it 65% of the time. So he was optimizing his work around the wrong metric when it leaves his warehouse. Whereas, in fact, value means when were they getting the equipment when they needed it. It wasn't good at all. And that's just one way that tells us we're looking at the wrong metrics, 
And if we look at the wrong metrics and the wrong goals, how can we actually perform better? Mm-hmm. In trying to figure out those new metrics, what do we need to understand as the fundamental changes that have taken place in work today? So I think in many industries and in many sectors, that, that value uh, equation has shifted. To give an example, I was just with some uh, owners and managers of independent bookstores. What was the value of a local bookstore you know, 20 years ago? It was that you could actually get the books, right? You go to the book, the bookstore, you get the book, and, and they help you find the book, right? That was the value they provided. It was instant, right? You can go to the local bookstore and get it. That value completely evaporated today because Amazon delivers that better. So what then is the value of a local bookstore? Well, they have to change the equation completely. They have to innovate themselves and renew themselves. Now it's more about being a, 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 commu- a place for the community to have author events or other kinds of events or maybe a place where you sit and have a cup of coffee. So it's completely changed. And there are, the, the, the revolutions that are happening across industries really uh, compel you to think about what is the new value that I need to provide? And it's a very, very difficult question to, uh, to answer sometimes. And of course, sometimes managers are not necessarily the best people to answer those questions. No, and, and that's, I mean, if you have been a manager in, in, in a job in a sector for 20 years, you've gotten accustomed to, to what you do. And it's hard to step outside of the role and see things in a new and different way. That's often why entrepreneurs and innovators can come in and completely change things. But what we found in the study, though, is that there are many managers that are able to because they ask questions like, I call them sometimes stupid questions, you know, why are we doing things a certain way? And, and many times they're conventions. They just happened to be done like that 50 years ago. And we keep on doing it. I'll give you a fantastic example. We come across this principal of a high school outside of Detroit, uh, running Clintondale High School, Greg Green. And this was a failing high school. They were doing terrible. The students were failing. They were not graduating. It was terrible, almost being closed down. And then he asked a fundamental question, which was, why are we sending homework home with the kids? The teacher looked at him saying, you know, what stupid question is that? You know, that's what we've done. We've done it for 300 years. He said, no, why are we doing it? Because... They're not doing the homework, and we've tried to get them to do the homework, but it doesn't work. We must change the model of teaching. And then they flipped the model. In other words, they did homework at school and lectures via video clips at home, which is called the flip model. You just do it the other way around. And because of that change, he was able to innovate in that school, and they have now terrific graduation rates and, and grades for the kids because he dared to ask that question and to be that innovator or work in his, his environment. So we need more people think like that. How does this relate to what you talk about in Great at Work with respect to doing less, to be more focused, more detail-driven, but doing less? Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating finding, I, I find, which is, we found a top performance, they, they do less than obsess. It's sort of a two-pronged strategy. First, you, you focus. You're hyper-focused. Because if you're going to do excellent work, you can't do too many things. And once you're hyper-focused, you also need to go in. You need to obsess. And I use that word deliberately, obsess. These people are targeted, uh, intense effort around what they do. So you need that two-pronged strategy. And the benefit of that is that you produce high-quality work. 
Now, you've got to focus on the things that matter the most because if you focus on the wrong things, then you're no better off. And that's, again, that value question. What is, the, what is the thing in my job that can create the most value and go all in on those few things? And, and it's, that produces better performance. And it's not obvious that it does because somebody who's doing many things at work, maybe two projects, three projects, or covering 10 customers, should, in principle, do better than somebody who's only doing one project or covering five customers. But if you're only covering five customers instead of 10, or you're doing one project instead of three, you can do it so much better. And that's where really top performance comes from. So what we have to do, we have to learn to focus. And you mentioned in the opening, you know, we're living in this world where work-life balance may not even be a thing anymore, 24-7. One is because we're spread so thin. We do too many things. We are taking on too many assignments and we collaborate too much. We do too much teamwork at work. And so we end up having the conference call at 9 o'clock on a Sunday evening and so on. And we've got to pare that list down to focus on the essential and go all in on those. Talk about the collaborative nature of work today. It's certainly one thing that has grown exponentially with respect to almost any business sector, greater focus on teams and collaboration. Oh, yes. Those are the buzzwords of today. I've studied collaboration for a long time. I wrote another book, as you mentioned, called Collaboration, and I studied for more than 20 years, and it's definitely become a far more important topic today. And in this new book, Greater Work, I talk about what I call two sins of collaboration. And the first sin is that we don't collaborate where we should. We live in silos, and that's obviously bad. But the other sin, which is maybe what's going on more now these days, is over-collaboration. We collaborate on too many things of very little value. And one of the reasons is that it's hard to say no, because if you say no to uh, joining a project or going into a meeting or sitting on a committee or whatever it is, you're seen as not a, a, being a team worker. You're a difficult person. You're declining request. But if those things are not that valuable, you shouldn't be doing them. And yet we say yes. And that's what we learned. To, we need to discipline collaboration. That's what I call this kind of principle, which is we've got to focus on a few really important collaboration activities and then do them well, as opposed to doing too many of these. And that's, that's what's going on today. There are just too many collaborations. And, and we've got to pare down that list. Isn't the problem, though, who makes the determination as to what value can come out of the collaboration? Yes, and, and absolutely. And that's what is happening is that a lot of people, they launch collaboration initiatives. It could be managers sitting around. They think it's a good idea. And maybe it is from where they are sitting. But then if everybody has a good idea, we end up with too many good ideas. And so we've got to have a rank, we need a ranking on that list. And that is what's happening in collaboration because, by definition, it's distributed. I'm sitting in one sales office, and then there are other people sitting in different sales offices in our company, and each one starts an initiative. And then we don't compare the initiative. We don't rank them. There is a lack of a forcing mechanism to say, well, out of the 20 initiatives launched, maybe we should only be doing three of them. So we need top management to kind of step in and provide some control and say, you know, we, got to, we need to rank that. It's a, it's a job of a leader, really. Isn't part of the problem, though, that as change is happening so rapidly, as there's so much disruption and dislocation, that it spreads a certain amount of fear in the workplace, and everyone feels they need to do more or at least seem to be more valuable? Absolutely, and that's a knee-jerk reaction, right? There's all that fear and uh, and all that uh, change going on. So the knee-jerk reaction is then to do more. 
launch more initiatives, more features, more services, more of everything, and more meetings as a result of that. And the problem is that it's not clear that more is better. It's better to kind of step uh, uh, step back and say, okay, in this new world, in this rapidly changing world, what are the few, king, few key things we think matter? Now, you may not know the answer to that because the world is so uncertain. And that's why I talk my, in my book about the need to learn, the need to launch small experiments. So if you don't know exactly what's going to work in your business, you should experiment. So get, Let's go back to those bookstores. You know, what should they be doing to confront Amazon? Well, if they want to create a community inside the bookstore, they can try to experiment with a few things. They can experiment with an office series. They can experiment with a coffee part. They can experiment with a cook, cooking section around cooking books and treat them as small experiments to see which ones get traction. And then once one of them gets traction, you kind of zoom in on that one and you make the most of that one. And so that's a way you could, could try to learn from what's going on in the world because a world of uncertainty is very hard to know what's going to work. Is there any difference in the way any of this applies to startups versus legacy companies? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And what, what I found, I didn't study uh, startups specifically in this study, but if you start comparing across the two sectors, there's quite a, a few things uh, that are similar. So what I just men mentioned about experimentation is exactly that. You have this idea of starting with a set of hypotheses or experiments in a startup. And then you see where you get traction. And then you might have to pivot, in other words, change direction because the traction is, is happening elsewhere. And that's the same in a, in a, in a large company. In many ways, large company needs to become more entrepreneurial, more like a startup. I mean, not exactly. I always think that large companies, if they can take the resources they have and also be more entrepreneurial, they can actually have the best of both worlds. Because as we know, in most startups, they don't have the resources. They don't have the customer, the distribution, the money, the managerial talent. And all those things tend to happen in, in large or to be present in large companies. But there, you know, back to the, the, the problem of, of being too much stuck in conventions and not changing enough. Talk about that pivoting and focus. You, you've mentioned that a couple of times and the importance of really focusing on what's working. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we, we need to have that ability to, to zoom in on, on a few things and, and, then, and then really try to extract value from that. I'm giving another example from a manager in our study. Uh, Hartmut Goritz, who runs the, um, a shipping terminal in Morocco, in Tangier in Morocco, in APM terminals. They run 55 shipping terminals around the world, including many in the United States. And when he arrived there, this company was, uh, the previous management was kind of all over the place. They have added services to improve revenues, so services for the freight companies and so on. And he said, you know, all of these things are distractions. What is it that really matters to our customers? Well, it's to get those containers in and out of the terminal as soon as possible. You know, that's what they value. And our throughput is not fast enough. It's not high enough. So he said, get rid of all this other extra stuff, and we're just going to do better at this one thing that our customer wants, which is throughput of containers in and out of that terminal, shipping terminal. And that's what he did. And he started then drilling down. How do we improve? How do we become more efficient? How do we add more equipment that can become, make us even more efficient, etc.? So hyper-focused and totally dedicated that one metric. 
and he improved that throughput rate by 33% in his giant terminal um, with the same resources because he was so hyper-focused. But first you have to understand what is that our customer want the most, and then you focus on that. How do we separate that hyper-focus and trying to figure out these things in terms of what's really important? How do we separate that from over-delving into process itself? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can sort of become too process-oriented and, and you sort of focus and, and what all you do is that you're creating uh, bureaucracy, you're creating um, too, too many uh, steps, too many uh, sign-offs, and, and we get an enormous amount of bureaucracy, which slows us down. So what we found that focus often goes hand-in-hand with simplification. So if you're going to simplify, you ask the question, what is it we can take away? I always think about management is about adding things, starting new initiatives, adding new products. We think of that as being progressive management. After all, if you're new, new in a job as a manager, you ought to be doing new things, right? Well, how about the opposite? How about taking things away? And when you start taking things away, you know, fewer steps in the process, fewer processes altogether, uh, you might actually then start speeding up. And one great example we have from, from the book is a, from a hospital where they were in the emergency room they were going to treat STEMI heart attacks, and they couldn't get it done within the 90 minutes from, from the per- patient entering the door to actually have surgery to, to clear the, the STEMI heart attack. And they were thinking about adding resources, you know, maybe adding an, an additional cardiologist. But then they took a hard look at the process, and instead of adding processes and steps, they said, what can we take away? And they realized they actually diagnosed the patient twice because they need to have an expert diagnose the second time to, to make sure they had it right. And I said, what if you just diagnose it once and do it right the first time? And so they took away the second diagnosis. In other words, they took away the need for a second doctor to come in, which is saving resources. And after they have done that, they were able to hit the 90 minutes t- limit all the time. In other words, it's taking away can be as effective as adding things. What is it in human nature or in the culture of of the business environment that makes this so difficult? Because oftentimes we see startup companies, even disruptive startup companies, that fall into the same habits and some of these same old patterns that have been around for so long. Yeah, they do. And I I think in the in the startup world it's, it's quite interesting. You know, a good investor, a good venture capitalist will only give the startup a little bit of money to see if they can actually um, do what they said they were going to do. And if you give them too much money, they start adding uh, complicated features, nice to have, extras to their products. And before you know it, it's complicated and they're falling into the same bureaucratic trap. Mm-hmm. So scarcity of resources can actually be a good forcing mechanism. And we have a tendency to add resources. So we have big teams where we can maybe do with a small team. We get lots of money when we don't need necessarily need all that money. So that is a good forcing mechanism to, to try to force ourselves to be very simple and, again, focus on what matters the most. I mean, Hartmut Goritz at that um, terminal in Morocco, he didn't add resources. He didn't add resources. In fact, he took away things. And then they were able to focus on what mattered. So that's one way to, to, to think about it. I was just um, working with a large high-tech company, and they had this very large team trying to develop a new product across different 
geographies, across offices. There were more than 100 people working on this new project. And it was a failure. Instead, they could have, somebody said, you know, I wish we had had just 10 people in one office and we could have gotten it done. Sometimes the problem is in the original creation, in trying to figure out what the company and what, or what the enterprise is really about. And, and that sometimes is where the, the initial problem happens. Yeah, I mean, that's the purpose question. Why do we exist? Why, why are we needed? And I, I like this question. Well, what happened if your company or your business wasn't there anymore? And if somebody says, well, you know, our competitors will recover the space and everything will be as before. Well, then you haven't really provided any value if it's that easy to replace you. So the business needs to answer the question, why do we exist? What, what is it the essentially part that we deliver that is so much better? And then, but what I found with companies is that they might answer that at a very general level. But you need to be specific. You need to be clear. Because when you're clear, you give direction for the rest of the people in the business, and then they can simplify. It is very, very difficult to have people who can focus if they don't know what to focus on, if their objectives are not clear, if the strategy is not clear. Clarity is really important, especially in a world that is so full of change and uncertainty today. How much of this is filtering its way into business schools today? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, and I'm not quite sure. Uh, I think uh, in certain areas we got some great uh, curriculum. I think, for example, this idea of a lean startup that Eric Ries and others have been propagating, I think, have filtered uh, into the business school community so people are understanding when you're starting a new business. It's not about being big and bloated. It's about starting in a scrappy way you know, being lean and being fast and experiment. And I think we're seeing that slowly in the in curriculum around uh, leading change as well. Uh, but I think business schools in general tend to be uh, quite traditional, and so it takes time. And how much of this is related to this idea that, that much has been written about of trying to cut down the amount of hours that we actually work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I... I uh, did analysis on that in this study when we studied these 5,000 people. We just correlated the number of hours to report they were working or the bosses report they were working with their performance levels. And we found something that I, others have found before. And it's, it's, a, it's a well-known phenomenon, but nobody follows it, including myself many times, which is uh, adding hours makes sense if you're working between 30 and 50 hours to a full-time job. So if you're working 30, it pays to go to 40 or even 50 in corporate America today. But from 50 to 65 hours per week on average, which is a lot of hours, uh, it's a very sharply declining function. So adding those hours pays off very, to a very little extent. And beyond 65 hours, actually, the, the performance goes down. That's, those are averages, obviously. In other words, um, this idea of working harder, longer hours than others, to perform better and be the most successful one is simply a wrong approach to work. And yet we think, you know, you've got to work crazy hard to be, you know, a superstar performer. And it's simply not true. It's not about working harder. It is about working differently. 
That's really the secret. And that's what these seven practices in, the, in my book, Greater Work, really, really looks at. How can you work different to create more value and be more focused to create better performance? And, and talk a little bit about what some of those specific seven things are, at least in, in terms of some of the key, key elements. Right. Yeah. So I divide them into two buckets. One is mastering your own work, and one is mastering working with others. And we covered some of them already. So in mastering your own work, this is focus, this do less than obsess is really a key thing. And then this idea of redesign your work for value. To get rid of stuff that is less of, less of value and really focus on, on value creation. And then it's this idea uh, that I call um, passion and purpose. That where's all this motivation, this drive to excel coming from? And it's not coming from the paycheck. It's coming from that inner drive. And the inner drive is really related to whether you feel passionate about what you do and whether you feel like your work has purpose. In other words, it really contributes. And people who really are top performers, they combine those two. They found a way, a job, a role, a way that they can work with has both passion and purpose for them. And that drives their performance. And then they apply what I call the learning loop. They're extremely good at continuous, continuous improvement in their job. And, and they just keep on uh, looking for ways to improve. And it's the quality of their learning. It's not the quantity. It's not the number of hours you practice or some, something. It is how well you're able to learn, to reflect, to get feedback, and modify your behaviors. So that's mastering, working, uh, mastering your own work. And then... You know, we know today, and we'd already talked about it, there's so much teamwork and collaboration. So how do you master that? When it comes to collaboration, we all recovered that. You've got to avoid the two sins, the collaboration, you know, the under or over collaborating, and apply this discipline collaboration. So that's just, that's one part. But there's another part, which I call fight and unite. So much of the work today is done in meetings, and people hate meetings for the most part, because so many of them are so ineffective. So fight and unite is about running better meetings. And there should only be one reason to call a meeting, and that is to have a debate among the people who are there. If you're doing a status update, you don't need a meeting. You can put that in an email. I really, really like that mug that is out there that says, I survived another meeting that should have been an email. I mean, that's, <laughs> if you think about it. You know, a status update can go into an email. So it's about debate. How do you fight? How do you have a good debate? How do you have constructive conflict? So you really get all the arguments out on the table and you have real discussions so that the best ideas and the best arguments actually emerge. And then you need to unite. You can't just have people leaving a room as enemies. So the good fight has to produce unity as well so people are committed and bought into the actions and the decisions that have been taken. So that fight and unite is really crucial to have better meetings and if you have better meetings you get more stuff done faster and better implementation and that's crucial talk a little bit about this reality of this 24 7 always on business world that we're in today yeah i mean the the 24 7 is it's not very productive basically i mean first of all uh, the number of hours, if, they get, if you're too many hours, it doesn't produce better results on average, so that's not a good way to work. Uh, the 24-7 also means that you are not able to turn off work when you're at home. You have to take your emails when you're having dinner with your family. Right? Those things are not leading to better results. And what we found though in this study is very interesting, which is people who do, do less than obsess, they actually are they're doing better work, the better results, and they also get what I call a time dividend 
They have a little more time left over to their private life with their family and friends. It means that they, their, their work is not really uh, encroaching so much on the private life as, as others. So that is crucial. If you can really do, do the focusing on what is important at work and saying no to other things, you are more able to combat that, that 24-7 pressure that you have. Talk a little bit about what you see in terms of generational difference of approaching this. Yeah, that's a great question. And in our data, we looked at people from, from early 20s to, to late 50s, and um, there weren't that many age differences. Now, I am a professor at UC Berkeley, so I teach millennials, basically, or even younger, younger people. Um, they um, are much more attuned toward this passion and purpose. They're looking for jobs and roles where they can actually have a meaningful impact and where they feel passionate about it. And so those, what, the implication of a management is that you've got to try to provide those environments and, and pay more attention to those things. And that, I think, is a generational difference. Um, it's interesting. Um, people on the older side, we found that they performed as well as people on the younger side. There was no age difference, even though I think there's some kind of age bias in the workplace that you think about somebody's 50 years old cannot do as good work as somebody's 25. In our day, that's completely wrong. And um, I think, though, if you are 50 and above, like like why I I am, you've got to question more the conventions because you're so used to them, because you've been doing it for 20, 30 years. And I think that's, that's one tip I have for people who are sort of 40 and above, constantly question, why are we doing it this way? Can't there be a better way? Ask stupid questions. Look for better ways. Look for changes. And, and then you can, you know, really, really perform. Because I think the younger generation, they're more like, they do that. Um, it's more, they don't have the, the burden of the 30 years of conventions so much. So they would just do things differently. And they would just ask, well, why is it this way? And, and we need to have um, people of all ages do that. Morton Hansen, his new book just out from Simon & Schuster is Great at Work, How Top Performers Work Less and Achieve More. Morton, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's been a real honor. Thank you.